The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 1. Luke, chapter 1. We began last week uh, looking at the Christmas story, really focusing in on the incarnation and the miraculous thing that God did in the life of young Mary and conceiving in her womb the Son of God. We thought about and looked at Luke's account of the incarnation of Christ, uh, the virgin birth. And uh, I want to skip down, as I told you we would this week, down to verse 46. And look at verse 46 through 55 or 56. And, and, and look at, at Mary's response to what took place. Uh, the way this affects her and the way that she responds to what we saw last week. So if you would look with me at verse 46, following down to verse 55. And Mary said... My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Mary remained with her, that's Elizabeth, three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we we look with with great anticipation at these words of Mary, this precious young woman who you chose to bear your very own son, through whom our very own Savior was born. Lord, we look at and how she responds to the miracle of the birth of the Savior, to the miracle of this conception that was brought by the Holy Spirit into her life by your power. And we see her heart explode in worship in this song. And Lord, as we look at this song this morning, we pray that you would draw us to worship just the same. That we would recognize that worship is the, the natural response to a true encounter with you, that we see you for who you are And we're drawn to praise you for who you are, just as Mary has done. Give us a fresh glimpse of yourself and draw our hearts to worship you, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, we skipped a little portion of the text uh, moving from last week to this week. We looked last week at verses 26 down through... Uh, verse 36, or a little further down, a little further down to about verse 38. 
what we skipped is verse 39 down to verse 45 and and we'll come back to that when we look at John the Baptist and we focus on uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah uh, but just in brief so you understand the context after the encounter with the angel Mary uh, departs we're told and she goes to visit uh, her cousin Elizabeth and as she greets Elizabeth Elizabeth is six months pregnant with John the Baptist and another miraculous uh, 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 a child being born to this barren couple and and there's this uh, uh, this this affirmation of all that God has has promised to Mary as this child John leaps in the womb of his mother upon Mary's arrival and greeting and uh, that sparks in Mary this 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 outburst if you will of praise in a song that we look at this morning this these verses you'll see if you uh, if your Bible if you've got your Bible in front of you, are, are, they, they look a little different on the page than probably what we've been studying up to this point. What we've been studying up to this point is narrative, but here we see that it's sort of off-centered and written, and it looks on the page of your Bible like a poem, and that's what it is. It's a poem. It's a song that Mary sings of praise, this spontaneous song of praise that comes out of her heart and flows from her lips based on what God has done in her and what is God what God is doing through her she she sees what God has done she's already amazed at what the angel has told her and now this 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 confirmation that comes and this blessing that flows from her cousin Elizabeth uh, it just takes her over the top in praise and she has to express that praise in some way and it comes out of her in this explosion of worship through a song. This song is one of four songs that we find in Luke's gospel. Luke gives us four songs. He gives us Mary's song here. He gives us a song uh, by Zechariah. He records for us the song that is, that is delivered by the angels. And he gives us another song delivered by a man named Simeon. We'll, we'll catch all of these songs in due course. They're four songs. They're only found in Luke's gospel. The other gospel writers don't include them. And so we would assume that Luke has included them here for a purpose. It seems that Luke wants Theophilus and all of us who would ever read this gospel uh, not to, to, to know uh, specifically what God has done, but to understand how it needs to be responded to. It's not enough for Luke just to say what God has done what God has done in, in his salvation work among his people needs to be said, but it needs to be more than said. It needs to be praised. And he gives us these songs as an example of the right response to the salvation of God come to his people. We don't just talk about what God has done. We worship him for what he's done. We don't just declare what he's done. We praise him for what he's done, for he is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And so we gather and we praise him together. We praise him on our own. He's a God who's worthy of praise. And so Mary praises him here via song. And I want to just make a couple of notes about uh, this song in general at first. And then I want to sort of focus on really what Mary focuses on in her song. Now, there are two things that you need to note about this song in general. And by the way, we could spend a few weeks really working through the complexities of this text and all the Old Testament references uh, that she speaks of. They have meaning, and there's a, a reason why she remembers these things and says these things. But for this morning's sake, I just want you to notice that her song is absolutely filled to overflowing with Scripture. What Mary says, literally the text of her song of praise, 
is, is scripture flowing out of her heart from all over the Old Testament. Mary is quoting all throughout the Bible in this song. She quotes in part at least Psalm 103, Psalm 22, Psalm 147, Psalm 98, portions of Job 12. She quotes from Isaiah, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, Micah, Zephaniah, uh, among others. Uh, This is a, a song that is filled with the text of Scripture. Probably most notably, you will notice, maybe you just write this down in the margin of your notes if you're taking them this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. A, a, a very important Old Testament song, the song of, of Hannah in the Old Testament. Another woman who, who uh, celebrates what God has done in giving birth in the Old Testament. And if you go back and read the song of Hannah, you'll see much that correlates with Mary's song here. And Mary, as a young girl, would have certainly grown up hearing the Old Testament, knowing the Old Testament, learning the Old Testament, uh, having it preached and taught in the synagogue and, and, and most likely read in her home. And she would have, like any young Jewish girl of her time, looked back at the women of faith in the Old Testament, women like Hannah, and, and, and just marveled at what God did in their life. And they would have been uh, heroes to, to a young Jewish girl like Mary. And that's clear because of what comes out of her heart when she explodes into praise of God are the very things that she's read and heard and memorized from the Old Testament. Mary's a young girl, 12, 13, maybe at the most 14, 15 years old. But she's a young lady who knew the Bible. She was a young lady who understood the Bible, who has not just casually listened to the Bible, but someone who's hidden God's Word in her heart that she might fear him and honor him and, and live by him. And it's obvious because when something miraculous happens in her life, when God intervenes miraculously and does this wonderful work and she explodes into praise, what naturally flows out of her is what's been tucked away inside of her throughout her life, and that's the word of God. She went to the synagogue and she heard the Bible read. She heard the Bible taught. She had much of it memorized, and it just flowed out of her spirit as she worships the Lord. You don't get this way. That doesn't happen in your life when you're one who just dabbles in the Bible, when you're one who just trifles with the Word of God, when you're the one who who has them on your shelf but never opens them and reads them, when you're one who who doesn't take the Bible seriously, it doesn't really play a role in your life, when... When, when uh, you just, you know, occasionally pick it up here or there, when you have a problem and you're, you're, in, you're desperate and you, you, you pull that thing off the shelf and you, you blow the dust off of it and you start, you know, looking at the, 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 uh, the, the, the appendix in the back for whatever verse you can find to apply to whatever problem you have at the moment. That's not how you become rich in the Word of God. You become rich in the Word of God when you live like Mary, when you, when you put yourself under the reading and the teaching of God's Word regularly in your life, when you make it a, a, a part Part of the habit of your life to know God's word, to hear God's word, to study God's word, to memorize God's word. When that happens and you hide it in your heart in moments where life brings unusual things into your world, you, the, the word of God just comes out of you in the way that you respond. We see that in Mary. We see that in her and in her song. And it reminds us of the the critical importance of hiding the Word of God in our hearts. When we hide it in our hearts, it comes out in all that we say and all that we do. 
There's something else I want you to see about this. I want you to notice just the humility of Mary that sort of is on brilliant display throughout this song. You see in verse 48, she says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. What, what Mary marvels at is that she is who she is, and God would choose her to be the vessel for his only begotten son, for the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah to come. She just wonders at the fact that God would choose someone like her to bring that kind of a miracle. She knows that she is one of humble estate. She's one that nobody in the world would really ever notice for anything that was unique about her. And yet God has regarded her. And God has blessed her. Throughout this song, you, 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 you read the text of it, and you, you see that, that Mary does not in any way, shape, or form exalt herself. She doesn't seem to see herself as anything other than the blessed recipient of God's miraculous grace. The undeserving recipient of his mercy and his kindness and his grace. She understands that, as we're going to see, that this child that is to be born of her is the one that Israel has been waiting on for generations. He's the one that the, the prophets foretold. He's the one that generations of her people have prayed for and waited for. And God has chosen lowly little her to be the one to give birth to the Messiah. She sees absolutely nothing in herself to warrant this. She isn't wealthy. She isn't powerful. She isn't important. As we noticed last week, she's a nobody from nowhere town. And yet of all the people in human history, he, God, has chosen her. That humility that comes out of her heart, it just drives her to exalt him and not her. Her worship is all about God. Her worship isn't about her. There's no self-exaltation. There's no self-centeredness in her song. Her song is a celebration of God and the wonder that God is and the wonder of the things that God has done and the wonder that God would do what he has done for somebody like her. This song is not about Mary, although she's the one who sings it. It's a song that's all about God and what he's done. She's a humble woman, and her song is the worship that flows out of a humble heart. But this song is worship. It's worship. And it's the right response to an event like what's happened in Mary's life. God has done something remarkable in Mary's life. He's done something remarkable in her body. By the power of his Holy Spirit, he has literally impregnated her with the second person of the Trinity. It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. It's unbelievable. That wasn't a word. I made it all up right there. Phenomenal. You can look that up in the dictionary. You'll never find it. But what God has done is unimaginable. It's, we can't even comprehend it fully. It has to be understood by faith. And Mary had to receive it by faith. But she had clear evidence, physical evidence, that what God has said is true. And what he had done has truly happened. Now, what's remarkable also, though, is we don't know when exactly the conception took place. We just know that the angel said it was going to take place. We're not told anything beyond that. When did it actually happen specifically in time? When did Mary recognize all of a sudden that now she's pregnant? All we know is that the angel visited her and he told her what was going to take place sometime between that angelic visit uh, and, and, and her visit with Elizabeth that Luke records for us, it took place. The miracle took place. 
She conceived by the Holy Spirit. Because by the time she gets to Elizabeth's house, she's pregnant. Now, Elizabeth, her cousin, is much further along. Uh, she was six months, had a head, you know, six-month head start there. But by the time Mary gets there, it's clear Mary's already pregnant. There, there's already fruit in her womb, if you will, uh, to use the language of the song. And when she gets there, she and her cousin celebrate together and marvel at what God has done in each of their lives. And this blessing that we'll look at later that, that Elizabeth uh, uh, declares over Mary is just further confirmation that what the angel had said to her has truly come to pass. And when she hears that confirmation, it, her heart just overflows with joy. It wasn't that Mary doubted what had took place. It wasn't that she was unsure if God would really do what he had promised. It's just that, that God had taken the care and concern in her life to give her this further confirmation through her cousin that she understood God's love and care for her, and she explodes into praise. She's so overcome with joy at what God is doing for her and through her that it just overflows out of her heart. And so she says in verse, 40, uh, verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in my God, my Savior. Magnify, the word uh, translated there means uh, to make great or to, to enlarge. Incidentally, in the, the Latin translation of the text, it's the word magnificat. It's the first word in the verse, and it's the name that's often associated with Mary's song, the magnificat, from that, that word in, in, in the Latin. But the word itself means to make great or to enlarge. There's a couple of ways you can enlarge something, at least in our world, you can enlarge something with a microscope. How many of you have, have used a microscope before? And what a microscope does is it takes something really tiny that really is small and it makes it look really big so that you can see it up close and, and see the, the details of it that you couldn't see because it was so small. So you can enlarge something by, by way of a microscope, taking something small and making it look bigger than it actually is. But that's not the only way to enlarge something. A telescope enlarges something also, doesn't it? But it enlarges in a different way. It takes something that is huge and magnificent and marvelous and brings it near to us so that we can see it in closer detail and, and get a better glimpse of what it's really like. That is the, the concept here about this behind this, this my, my soul magnifies the Lord. For Mary, God was like a distant planet. He was huge and magnificent, but he was distant and, and far away. She had read about him. She knew about him. But in this encounter in her life with this angel, God had, had come near to her. He had come close to her. He who was magnificent but far away had come close, and she was able to see him in a way she had never seen him before. She was able to, to regard him like she had never regarded him before. In the, the, the conception of Jesus in her womb, she was able to see more clearly his plan of redemption. She was able to see more clearly her place in the plan of redemption. She was able to see much more clearly the beauty of how the Messiah was going to come and, and, and with much more clarity what he was going to do in the future. She was able to see all the ancient promises of the Messiah being fulfilled in her. All of that was magnified in her and is being magnified through her. And she captures all that in this song. She's absolutely blown away by the wonder of it all. Her soul overflows with joy and that joy expresses itself in worship. It, it, it has to come out and tell others about what God has been doing and what God is doing. 
so that others don't miss it. And that's where all true worship comes from. It comes from a heart that is absolutely blown away by God. A heart that has been captivated by God and seen him in a way that is new and fresh and relevant and glorious and magnificent. And when we get a glimpse of God and we see him for who he is, the only appropriate response to that is to overflow in praise and worship because there is no one like him. And what he has done is unbelievable. That's the heart of all true worship. It's a natural response to a true encounter with God. You could see it all throughout the text of the Bible. You could go back to Exodus 34, and Moses sees the glory of God pass by him. God is magnified in front of him, and he sees him like he's never seen him before. And, and Moses falls to the ground, and he worships. A little further over in history from Mary's encounter with Elizabeth here, we're going to see some magi who come uh, a bit after Jesus' birth. And they come, and we're told in Matthew 2, verse 11, on coming to the house, they encounter Jesus. They, they, they see the child with his mother. And the, the response is they, they bow down, and what do they do? Now, here's a the clue. They worship him. They worshiped him. A little further over in history, we're going to see Jesus, this child who's now a full-grown man doing ministry, and he, he, he miraculously saves his disciples when they're caught in the middle of a storm, and they think they're going to drown, and their boat is going to overturn. They believe they're about to die, and Jesus walks on the water right in the middle of the storm, and he shuts it all down. They see him. He's magnified in front of them. They see him like they've never seen him before. And Matthew records for us in Matthew 14, 38, that those who were in the boat, they worshiped him. They worshiped him saying, truly, you're the son of God. Listen, when, when we have an encounter with almighty God, the only appropriate response is to worship him. He's magnified in our soul and we see him and we have to express that in worship. Mary is overwhelmed with God's kindness and his mercy toward her. But what we need to note here is important. It's not just his mercy and his kindness in choosing her to give birth to Jesus that's important to Mary. In verse 47, we see there's something else that's very important to her that drives her to worship. Verse 47 says, And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It's not just that Mary marvels that she's the one chosen to give birth to the Messiah. Mary marvels that God has chosen to save her, that, that, that salvation has come to her. She understands when she, when she hears the message of, of what's happening, that the Messiah is coming. She knows in her own heart that like every other human being, she needs a Savior. She understands that she's a sinner and her sin has separated her from God and she personally on an individual level needs a savior. And she understands that this, this coming Messiah, uh, as she knows her Old Testament, that the Messiah was the one who was going to come. And in his coming, it was going to be sort of the apex of all of God's redemptive history. It was going to be the climax of his saving work of his people. And the angel had already told her that the child that was in her womb was going to have the name what? Jesus, which means God saves. God saves. Mary understood that she was giving birth to a Savior. And he wasn't going to be just a Savior for other people. He was going to be her Savior. She needed a Savior, and he had come to save her. 
Like every other, every human being, Mary needed a Savior, and in her womb, God had provided one in Jesus. Listen, friends, when, when a person truly understands the implications of being lost, it's a serious thing. To understand that you're a sinner, and that our sin has separated you from God. To understand that the wages of that sin is eternal hell, eternal death, eternal separation with God forever, and a place designed for the devil and his demons where men and demons pay for their eternal consequences, for their eternal cosmic sin against Almighty God. When a man or a woman realizes they look themselves in the mirror and they come to, the ter- come to terms with the implication that they are lost, and they need a savior. When they understand that their good works and their religious works cannot do one single thing to save them, and that their only hope is that God would be merciful and God would be gracious and God would do for them what they couldn't possibly do for themselves. When a person comes to terms with their lostness and understands it like that, when God saves them, they can't help but celebrate and worship. They can't help but celebrate. When you fully understand your lostness, You'll never get over the fact that God saved you. And Mary understood her lostness, and she was marveling that God would save her. When a person truly understands the miracle of salvation, that God shows mercy on the undeserving, that he sent his, his one and only son to die in their place, to atone for their sins with his own blood. Like Mary, you'll worship him. And your worship will never end. And worship won't be a burden. It won't be a chore. It won't be some sort of an uninvited interruption into life. It'll become the air that you breathe. When you truly understand how lost you are and how desperate the situation of your soul is and that God has saved you miraculously, not because you deserved it, not because you've earned it, but simply because he has chosen to be gracious and kind and merciful to you and he has brought you to himself through the blood of his only begotten son, worship will be the the, the air of your life. Nobody will have to chide you to worship. Nobody will have to prod you along to get you to worship. It'll become the theme of your life. People who really understand that and understand the God-saving work in their life, they, they, their whole life becomes, the New Testament says, a sacrifice of praise to God. Whatever they do, whether they eat or whether they drink or whether they go to work or whether they're at home, they do it in such a way that they glorify and magnify the Lord as an act of worship. To show him is glorious and to show him is wonderful. And they long to gather with God's people and do the same. Mary is a humble woman who understands the miracle of salvation, whose heart is filled with the word of God, and who worships him with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength. The rest of this song really gives us the attributes of God for which Mary is particularly grateful, which she finds particularly worthy of worship at this particular moment in her life. And that's really, really the, the text of the rest of the song. I just want to pull out uh, sort of a, a, a couple of snippets of this just to give you a, a sense for it. If you're taking notes, we'll just call this God's attributes that are worthy of worship in Mary's context of this song. The first thing she tells us, and we'll just capture a couple of them, one of the things that captivates Mary about God in this song that, that drives her to worship is that God is mighty, yet he's merciful. God is mighty, yet he's merciful. 
she's in, in, in this in the incarnation in the conception of the son of god inside of her and the saving work of god in her life she is astounded by the fact that god could be as mighty as he is and at the same time also be merciful and care about lowly people and mary uses several words in the song that that describe god's mightiness if you were to sort of scan through the song, you, you see her call him mighty. She says he's shown strength with his arm. She talks about how he brings down the mighty, speaking of those human who thinks, humans that think they're mighty. All of that's language that sort of captures the idea that God is powerful and he's strong, that he's all-powerful and he's beyond any human being and that there's nobody that can challenge him and that he's done amazing, unbelievable things in history things that no human can compare with. He is mighty above all mighty. The Old Testament runs that theme all throughout, that God is mighty and does great things. You can go back to the Psalms, and just to give you a couple examples, Psalm 24, 8, the psalmist says, Who is the king of glory? It's the Lord. Strong and, say it with me, mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. The psalmist celebrates the might and the power and the glory of the Lord, and he says, who's like him? And the answer is, there's nobody like him. In Psalm 71, 19, the psalmist says, you have done great things, O God, who is like you? In Exodus 15, beginning in verses 6 and 7, listen to what God's people say. They say, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy and the greatness of your majesty. You overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 6, Jeremiah says, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. All throughout the Old Testament, the, the testimony of the Bible is that God is mighty and that he's powerful and that he's great and that there's nobody like him. But the Old Testament doesn't just tell us about God's might and his power. It shows us examples of his might and his power displayed in human history. We can go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible and we see the, the power and the might of God displayed in creation. God, the all-powerful one, by the simple spoken word, creates everything that there is. And we think about the power and the might of such a thing, that God is so powerful and he's so mighty that he, that, that, that he can speak and everything that is known comes into existence like that. He's a powerful and mighty God who made all things. You could flip over in your Bible a few pages from creation and you could see the power and the might of God displayed as he, as he floods the earth and saves only a man named Noah and his family. All that he created gets uncreated in some ways and destroyed because of the rampant sin and ungodliness we see his power and his might on display. You flip over a few pages in, in your Bible and you see his power and his might displayed as he rescues his people from slavery to Egypt. He brings up Moses and he leads Moses to go to Pharaoh and he leads his people out and his people march out of Egypt after all of the plagues and the, the, the Pharaoh and his army come chasing after and they find themselves uh, cornered at the Red Sea thinking they're surely going to die and the mighty power of God on their behalf intervenes in human history. And in Exodus chapter 15 we're told that the blast of your nostrils 
the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I'll pursue, I'll overtake, I'll divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I'll draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. The might of God displayed in parting a sea and allowing his people to walk through and drowning an entire army. God is mighty, mighty. And that leads the Israelites at the end of their song of celebration in that same section of the Bible in Exodus 15, 11, to simply say, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The answer is there is no one who's like him. He's mighty beyond mighty. There is no one who even is in the same zip code with God when it comes to might and power. Nobody even in the same universe. His might is talked about in the Old Testament, shown to us in the Old Testament, but his power and his might is manifest in Mary's life and the fact that he is able to create life in her womb miraculously. creates it in her womb. And Mary marvels at the power and might of God. But what really astounds Mary is that the God who is that mighty happens to also be merciful. She is amazed that he is both mighty and merciful. She wonders at the fact that this mighty God would care about the humble estate of people like her. She marvels at the fact that he would have mercy on the poor like her. In verse 49, she says, He who is mighty has done great things for me. For me. What she's saying is much like what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 8, verses 3 through 4, where the psalmist says, I, I look up, when I look up at your heavens, at the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what's man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. When you see the magnificence and the glory and the power and might of God, it makes you wonder, what in the world? How could God be so mighty and care about somebody like me and be merciful to someone like me? But that's who he is. Mary says he has mercy on those who fear him. The God who is mighty has mercy on the people who fear him. To fear means to respect, to honor, to obey, to revere him. And he declared this in his word, uh, excuse me, God declared this about himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. We referenced this text a moment ago. When the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord declares himself to Moses in the midst of this mighty display of his glory. Although he's glorious and magnificent and mighty, he is also a God who's merciful and gracious, who's slow to anger and who's abounding in love. Aren't you glad that God is not just mighty, but that he's mighty and he's merciful? It's remarkable. A mighty God who isn't merciful would crush us. But that's not our God. Mary in the incarnation of Jesus, experience both the power and might of God and the mercy of God at the same time. And she worships him for being like that. 
Not only is God both mighty and merciful, but she tells us in this song, and she marvels at the fact that, that God turns something upside down that the world does. He humbles the proud, but he exalts the humble. You see this throughout the, the text of her song. This is something else that Mary sees, because when she looks at the world around her, just like when you and I look at the world around her, that's not how people operate. People don't operate like that. The world around us exalts the proud, exalts the accomplished, exalts the beautiful, exalts the rich, exalts the, uh, those who, who have positions or those who have fame or those who are exceptionally talented. The people who are largely the proud ones are the ones that the world exalts and, and, and sort of uh, balloons their already, uh, already birthed pride in their hearts. And the world largely disregards the humble. But God turns all of that upside down. His ways are not like our ways, are they? His thoughts are not like our thoughts. Mary says, no, God does the opposite of that. And I marvel at the fact that what God does is he takes the proud and he humbles them and the humble he exalts. God delights at lifting up the underdogs. God loves to choose the nobodies. And he has a track record of that, right? Mary is just one in a long line of those. We could go back to a young David in the Old Testament that surely Mary was very well acquainted with from reading the Old Testament. You remember David? When God is, is, is choosing a king for Israel, after the utter failure of Saul, he goes to David's home and David is the youngest of his brothers and he is the, the least likely from every human perspective to be the one chosen by God and God uh, sends the prophet to, to, to his home and the prophet looks at all these sons in the house and he says none of these are good enough you got anybody else and they say well there's this one guy he's the runt you know he's out in the field with the sheep the prophet says bring him on in and God says that's my man that's my man. The least expected one is the one I'm going to exalt. God loves to choose the nobodies. Mary understands this more than anyone. She looks at herself in the mirror and she knows she's a nobody. And yet God has chosen her for this remarkable, remarkable thing. She, she's been chosen to participate in the apex of all of redemptive history. The Messiah coming into the world that he's going to come through her, a nobody. God has taken her, the humble, and he has exalted her instead of choosing the proud. You think of all the people God could have chosen to give birth to his son. All the important people in the world at the time. Mary knew who the important people were. Everybody knew who the important people were. And she knew she wasn't one of them. God could have chosen any one of them. But he chose her. He exalts the humble ones who fear him. The flip side of this is true too, though, isn't it? That God humbles the proud. God doesn't just exalt the humble, he humbles the proud. And he's got a, a track record of that as well. Her song references this a couple of ways. He, she says, he scatters the proud. The, the proud are brought down. You see, here's the thing. Those who exalt themselves might impress other people, but they don't impress God in the slightest. In fact, he has a track record of humbling people who do such things. And the Old Testament is filled with them. We could just look at Pharaoh of Egypt in the Old Testament, right? You don't get much more proud and exalted than Pharaoh in his day. And God completely humiliates and humbles the man. 
You could look back in, in 1 Samuel chapter 17 and you could see the giant Goliath who everybody is shaking in fear of, this proud giant who looks down at a little David and says, is this the best you got to bring after me? And the next thing you know, he's on his back dead. God has a way of humbling the proud. Or we could go to the book of Daniel and we could look at Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian king who stands on the roof of his, of his place and he looks out over Babylon and he says, boy, is this not the great Babylon which I built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? He's marveling at his own pride, just wallowing in his own self-glory. And God intervenes in his life. We're told immediately the word of the Lord was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird claws. Picture that in your head. Going from prancing around like a peacock on your roof to growing feathers and gnarly nails and whatever it is that he looked like. God knows how to humble the proud. He knows how to bring the mighty down. Nebuchadnezzar got the message in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And get this, those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. This would become a theme of Jesus' ministry later, wouldn't it? You would see him as he, as he moves and as he walks and he encounters people and he talks to people. He is constantly regarding the humble and the lowly and exalting them. And he's challenging those who are prideful, calling out the religious leaders who were blinded by their own human pride, took pride in their own religious works, took pride in their own morality. And Jesus says, you know what? You're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. Not only are you not who you think you are, you don't even know God. A filthy tax collector is going to make it into heaven, and you're not. The bottom line of all this is just this. That's the kind of God that he is. He's a God who exalts the humble and a God who humbles the proud. And if you want to understand life, you need to understand this, at least as it regards God. The way up is the way down. The way to be right with God is not to exalt yourself, but it's to humble yourself. In fact, the biggest barrier to salvation is human pride. The biggest thing that stands in the way of a man or a woman coming to salvation in Jesus Christ right now is human pride. Because in order to be saved, a, a person has to come to Jesus Christ. And in order to come to him and receive him, a person has to first look themselves in the mirror and admit that they're a sinner. Admit that they're separated from God. Abandon every effort at self, every, excuse me, every self-effort to save themselves have to confess that their only hope is not in themselves, but that God would be merciful and do something for them that they can never do for themselves. It is a tremendous act of humility to confess a need for God. And most people will not be saved because they refuse to humble themselves and bow before a mighty God. Most people look at themselves and think they're all right. They think they've got it together. They think they're doing pretty good. They think they can manage things just fine. Coming to Christ requires humility. It's the humble who humble themselves before the Lord and say, God, I'm nobody and I'm nothing. 
and I have no hope but you. My only hope is that you would look at somebody like me and do for me what I can't do for myself, that you would take a humble person like me and exalt me. Not because I deserve it, not because I'm worthy, but because you're a merciful and kind God who does things like that. Last thing I want you to see in about two minutes here that Mary celebrates about God, that she worships about God, is that he is a God who keeps his promises. Maybe later on we'll circle back to this theme. But Mary understands something very important, and it's shown in this song. She understands that what's happening in her at this moment, this event, the birth of this child through her womb, is a part of the outworking of God's plan of redemption that has been going on for generations and generations. She shows us this in verses 54 and 55, where she tells us that she has this awareness that he's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary understands that what's happening in her, that the birth of this child is the apex, it's the climax of, climax of God's redemptive history. Something that God has been working for generations throughout history is coming to a climax in her. God made promises long, long ago. He made commitments long, long ago, generations ago. He made promises. And this child that is to be born through her is a beautiful example that God always keeps his promises. That he never says he'll do something and doesn't do it. God's plan of redemption is revealed sort of, you know, sort of progressively through the Old Testament. We see hints of it all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember when sin first came into the human experience in the Garden of Eden? Do you remember that? And right at the, the end, uh, Adam and Eve and, and God challenges them. He brings judgment on them for their sin. But even in the midst of God's judgment on their sin, in verse 15 of Genesis 3, he says this I'll, to, to Eve, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We don't have time to speak too much about it, but that's a prophecy of this child that was to be born of Mary that God was going to one day send one who would destroy the works of the enemy. One whom Satan would, would, would strike at his heel, but who would ultimately crush Satan. That was all the way at the very beginning. Once sin entered the human picture, God began to talk about the fact that he would redeem his people and that he would do it through one who was going to come later. I can remember this so vividly. It was 1996, and I was sitting in my very first uh, Bible class in college. It was Old Testament survey, and I was young, and I thought I knew something uh, or two, and I was excited to be in my first Bible class. I had just uh, sort of surrendered my life to full-time ministry and shifted from being uh, someone pursuing a degree in chemical engineering to, to shifting toward uh, pursuing a degree in theology and and so forth, and I was in my first Bible class at a Christian college in the upstate of South Carolina, and I'll never forget, we started in Genesis in the Old Testament, about 40 people in this class, and I had a professor who, who stood up, and, and he was talking about this text, this, this text, Genesis 3.15, and he asked us what we thought that, that meant, that he shall uh, bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, and I answered the question out loud like an idiot, and because I thought I knew, and and I said, well, that's a prophecy of the Messiah that was to come. It's a, a picture that God's going to save his people and what Jesus is going to accomplish ultimately at the cross. And he said, boy, I was hoping somebody would say that. And he went on to explain 
Now, that's not at all what this text had in mind. That really what the author of Genesis 3.15 was doing, what we have here is just uh, an an example of how an ancient author uh, made up a story to explain why things are the way they are in the world. It's brilliant, isn't it? He went on to say, like, you know, if I were to bring a snake into the room today, you'd all be very uncomfortable. Well, yeah, Einstein, I would be very uncomfortable. I'd wonder why you're handling snakes, and I'd like to get away from it. But that doesn't have anything to do with Genesis 3.15. He went on to explain that the whole first part of Genesis is nothing but parables made up, made up by an ancient author to explain why life is the way it is. Well, women have pain in childbirth, so they made up the story to explain why that is. And that was my first, my first sort of encounter with the reality that somebody can have uh, more degrees in theology than a thermostat and really not know anything about the truth. No, that was God speaking of his redemptive plan. And you flip your Bible over a few pages in Genesis and you see him encounter a man named Abraham. And he says to Abraham in Genesis 12, I'm going to make, make of you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you great. And you're going to be a blessing. And I'm going to bless those who bless you. And in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Abraham, I'm going to raise up from you a people, a people that are going to be a blessing through the world, to the world. And through your people, I'm going to bring redemption to not only Israel, but to all the nations of the world. I'm working out my plan of redemption, Abraham, and I'm making a promise to you that you're an important piece of this puzzle and your people are going to be a part of this. And if you flip over a few more pages, you're going to see a man named David and and God encounters David and he says to, to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12, David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'm going to raise up your offspring after you. He'll come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He'll build a house for my name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David, out of you, out of your line, out of your lineage, I'm going to bring redemption to my people. I'm going to bring a king who's going to sit on the throne, the throne of my kingdom, and he'll reign forever. David, I promise this is going to come to pass. And if you flip over a few pages to Isaiah, you have the, the, through the mouth of the prophet saying things like, for unto us a child is what? Born. To us, a son is given. The government's going to be upon his shoulders. He should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, he'll establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness. Mary understands that God has been working out a plan of redemption all throughout human history. And he's been promising Abraham and promising David and promising God's people through the prophets. And now God is making good on his promise in her womb. God is a God who keeps his promises. He does what he says he's going to do. And maybe that's a great way way for us to end our look at at this song. Because Luke wants Theophilus to know. Theophilus... You can trust your faith. It's a reasonable faith. Because it's anchored in not only the truth of who God is, but in human history. And it's anchored in a God who keeps his word, who does what he says he's going to do. And Jesus is a beautiful example of God making good on a promise for generations. But you and I sit on the other side of that promise, don't we? We're on the other side of the cross from all of those events. We don't look back to Abraham, and we don't look back to David, 
And we don't look back to the prophets to help us understand what's yet to come as far as the Messiah because he's already come. He's already lived and he's already died and he's already been raised from the dead for our salvation. But the word of God does give us an awful lot of promises about what's yet to come. Things that we don't fully understand. But one thing that you can bank on is that God keeps his promises. The God who came to Mary and birthed his son in her womb has told us through his word that that very same son is going to return. And he's going to return in bodily form. And upon his return, he's going to judge the living and the dead. And before him, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And that's the most important thing this morning. Much to learn from this song. But the question is, have you humbled yourself before the Lord? Are you still exalting yourself in pride? Have you come before the Lord Jesus in humble recognition that you are a sinner who's in need of a Savior? That like Mary, you need a Savior. And that you can't save yourself and that your only hope is the mercy of Jesus. That the God who is mighty would be merciful to you. He holds out his hand to you today and he says, just come to me. Come to me. Believe upon me. Place your faith and trust in me. Bow before me. Offer me your life and I will redeem you. Your life will become a part of my plan of redemption for the world. Won't you, won't you do that today? Let's pray together. Lord, you are a God who is amazing. You're a God who is mighty beyond our comprehension, and yet you are merciful. The one who could crush us and start over and make a different people who'd be more faithful. You have chosen to be merciful to us. In our rebellion, you gave your only begotten son, birthed in Mary's womb, died on a cross, that we might have eternal life. We thank you for that, oh God, that you've done that. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you died on the cross in our place and that you continued this theme of being merciful to the humble. I pray that if there are any who are still prideful in this room this morning resisting your spirit, that you would humble them right now, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would save their very soul. We worship you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. We exalt you as our Savior, and we marvel that you would save some such as us. The only response we have is to worship you. And we do that with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, because you're worthy. And it's in your holy name we pray.